This morning, we're going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew, we're starting the 20th chapter. We'll be going through verses 1 through 16 this morning. So it's Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus speaking is telling the disciples. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, And the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand there idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this worker, the last worker, as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The general context of today's scripture is actually ties you know, back into even you know uh, the last couple of chapters of Matthew, but specifically looking at the rich young man that Jesus spoke to about what it would take. He comes up to Jesus, you recall, and says, "What does it you know? What must I do to be saved?" And Jesus says that he needs to sell all that he has. In other words, Jesus could read his heart and realize that all his possessions were standing between him and in relationship with God. And uh, he walked away saddened. He was very wealthy. And uh, so, you know, Jesus speaks to his disciples uh, that, you know, uh, in in a good sermon on it last week, uh, you know, you can go online and listen to the messages that have have come along the way. If you missed this last one, you could go back on, on our website and pick it up and, excellent message and it talks about the camel through the eye of a needle and a lot of other parts of this. But what Jesus was trying to get at is, is that man can't, I'll just put it bluntly, man can't do what needs to be done. God can. And yet we see Peter uh, possibly representing the rest of them because when he speaks he says we. Uh, is is still questioning about this idea of, of 
even getting back to who's greatest, who's first, who, you know, in the kingdom of God. And so he says, uh, going back to 1927, Peter asks, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, it's clear Peter's getting the idea, uh, you know, who, Jesus, we were the first to say, you're the Lord. We were the first to follow you. We were the first. So, what do we have? We've done what you asked this rich ruler to do. Maybe not in the, in the capacity that he would have, if he'd given everything up, would it be equal that way? But we did it. We gave up everything and followed you. So, what are we getting? What's our return? And it's almost like saying, what's the return on my investment here? And, uh, you know, again, we, we, we see Peter and, and the, the, the men looking at it and saying, what's our position in your kingdom going to be? We are the disciples. We're the ones that have followed you all of this time. And uh, Jesus says, your reward's going to be great. I'm not going to get into the details of that message, but your word's going to be great. But let me explain to you something, and 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 he does it in a parable, and he says, basically, let me explain to you something I don't think you're quite getting yet. (laughs) Uh, And and he starts talking about this kingdom of heaven. And and he says, you're going to have manifold blessings. You know, yeah, but but many are who are first will be last. He finishes verse chapter nineteen with this verse, which we just uh, paralleled with verse sixteen of chapter twenty. Many who are first will be last; the last first. The parable that Jesus shares: we have the kingdom of heaven is like. And he starts to talk of a master of the household. This master would be as, as in, in, in the reality or the, you know, he's representing God, the, the Father. The master of the household. And he's got this, this great vineyard. And he needs laborers. It's harvest time. He needs laborers. And so he calls on the, the laborers. He goes into town early in the morning. Uh, the, the, the Jewish workday was divided up into uh, you know, basically four sections into quarters and each of those into to equal parts of, in thirds. So there's 12 parts to the Jewish workday. And basically, if you were looking at to say the, the time, frequently you'll see the, the Bible say at the first hour, at the second hour, at the third hour, whatever, and, and, and they'll be referring to the, the hour of the day. But we would say six in the morning would be this particular time. Early in the morning. Before actually that time. Because the day work day would start at six. So the master is in the marketplace hiring the day laborers. They gathered at the marketplace. To let, now that's where everybody knew to go that needed laborers for the day in their harvest. And you better get there you know, quick. If, you know, if, especially if you need a number of laborers. And, and, and he goes, he finds some laborers, he brings them, and he says, go to my field. And they agreed on a contract, basically. You'll get a day's wages. That's what a denarius was at that point, was a day's wages. It would be for a, a day laborer, a Roman soldier, made a denarius a day. And so, he asks them to, to go out into the field and begin working, and they do. 
And there seems to be no problem with, with this. As he's looking at it, whether he deems that it's not all going to get done or, or whatever the, the need, he, he sees that he wants more pickers, more laborers in the, in the, in the vineyard. He goes out at the nine o'clock time and brings in more laborers. And he agrees to pay them whatever is right. It says in verse 5, whatever is right, I will give you. And they agree to that. Now, they uh, are not expecting a day's wages at this point. Nice, but it's not typical. They'd get a portion of a day's wages, and it's not even specified what portion. Twelfth hour, noon, comes by. He goes back in and brings more laborers out. At three o'clock, he does the same thing again. And at at five o'clock in the evening, He goes and he looks and he says, I need some more. And he goes into the marketplace and brings them out for the last hour of work. Now, I I want to say, you know, notice, by the way, in this particular one too, uh, those that he calls at the 11th hour, there's no agreement. He doesn't say, whatever's right, I'll pay. It just says, and they went out to the vineyard. I mean, at that point, they would be... You know, if they got a leftover piece of, of bread from, the, from a, a meal during the day or something, they would be happy. And you have to understand, the laborers that would be still in the marketplace at the 11th hour are desperate. I don't know how many of you have lived in an agricultural area where day labor, a lot of day labor happens and is used. Down where... Kathy and I were raised, uh, and I guess it's, it's moved now, though it's the Kmart in Paso Robles in the parking lot. Uh, day laborers gather. And there's a lot of vineyards around there. That's one of the things that are used, but there's a lot of other agriculture and, and, and contractors that need the day laborers and, and, and guys to, to, in building and other things. They, they, that's where they go and look for them. And uh, about halfway through the day, you don't see any anymore. Because it's pretty likely that nothing's going to happen. But you, it's not unusual to see a few. Maybe they're hoping that they'll, they'll, they'll get seen and picked up for the next day or, or whatever, but they want work. That's these guys, the 11th hour guys. They're not slackers. I, I think that there's a, a number of... of you know, that look at it and say, you know, why do you, uh, why are you here? I only says because no one has hired us yet. He says, come on. And they come. No agreement on what the hiring would be, how much they would get paid. Not even a what is right, I will pay you. Day's over. 6 p.m. Deuteronomy tells us that a day laborer must be paid at the end of the day. That's the, the law. Okay? So it's time to pay the worker. He, the master tells his foreman to go out and pay the wages. 
And he says, start with the 11th hour people. Start with those who came last. Some make a, a large deal out of this in the sense that in, in, in studying through this, that you know, uh, this was an unusual way of paying. Uh, you might normally pay the first, the hardest, longest working and, and do it in reverse. Uh, but the real issue here is that Jesus is going to want to make a point with his parable. And, uh, and so the issue is, is that Jesus makes sure that everybody that has already worked in his story will be seeing the 11th hour pay scale. And they get a denarius. Now, I would assume it takes a, 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 some kind of time to, to, to that to happen. I, I think that already, and I'm just reading between the lines at this point, in my thinking, the way it would look to me, I, if I were standing there and I had come in at the uh, 3 o'clock shift, I might think, hey, <laughs> I might even get more than a denarius. Certainly if I'd come in in the noon shift, the 9 o'clock shift, but if I came in at the 6 o'clock shift, I would be sure. I mean, I worked all day. They worked an hour. I don't know that I'm going to get 12 denarius, but I, 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 I'm, I'm going to get something more. And, I, and that's a, I think that's a reasonable anticipation. I have worked manual labor uh, in my life, and, and uh, you know, you work a half a day, you get paid a half day. You work a full day, you get paid a full day. The job I had uh, through high school and college, you worked what you got paid by the hour. So if you got a two-hour day, you got two hours paid. <laughs> and Kathy's over there, two dollars. Yes, I got paid minimum wage. Uh, and uh, and so you know you 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 look and and, and you realize you know anything you can get. I would scramble. Uh, I I, I park I park my truck off of campus with my bike in a, in the in the bed and ride my bike onto campus so I could get to my classes so I could get, you know, I had one class right after the other, but Cal Poly's a large campus and, and their classes are scattered and, and the buildings are scattered. And so I, my bicycle, I could get, and I may be a couple of minutes late for a, a given class, but I could get it all into a block. And, uh, and, and so I could get on campus, get to school, get done with school, get back to my truck in a hurry. And the reason why I parked off campus was then it was easy to get out of there. And I didn't have to pay the fee <laughs> for parking. Um, but the idea was basically, you know, I wanted to get in as what? As many hours as I could. Because that's what I got paid for. So I look at this and I, I, I understand, as we have read through this, that, that building idea that I've worked longer, I get more. I think that's a natural expectation for the world. And this is where Jesus is trying to separate things. Because he's talking about God's economy versus man's economy. They're not the same. They're looking at this. They see a problem. 
They say, you've made them equal to us. Those that came at six say, you've made the eleventh hour people equal to us. We've borne all the, the, the day's burden. You know, uh, we've been picking all day. Has anybody done field work like this? Okay, it's, it's a lot of work. And it's normally harvest time in places, especially where vineyards are flourish. And I think of the areas down where we grew up. You go down to Paso Robles Temple, within the Tascadero in that area, and further north, and you go down 101, and there's vineyards just all over the place. And you go through there in, in, in September and, and, and October in harvest, and it is still hot. And so they said, we've, we've not only taken the, you know, the brunt of the work, the, 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 the first picking, which you know, is, is a lot, you're getting to it, and, 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 but we've also taken the heat of the day. These guys that came at the 11th hour, they're coming when everything is starting to cool down. Maybe the breeze is starting to come up. So they haven't suffered <laughs> As much as we have, and so they, they're they're grumbling, you know. You've made them equal with us, and and so that's the 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 the, the core of this situation is it, the tendency to look at things, to measure things, evaluate things, and compare things according to man's way of looking at the world, and and applying it to everything. And we do see this even in the church. I know that when, uh, you know, over the years, uh, pastors' conferences where you're going and you're sitting at a, a table with a, grunt, a bunch of other pastors in a particular classroom, and they'll say, oh, well, you know, somebody sitting next to you, where are you from and where are you from? And you're trying to get to know each other. And they, inevitably, someone will say, well, how big's your congregation? Oh, around 70, 80. Oh. Well, that is the average church in the, in the United States. <laughs> you know, uh, I've been compared. <laughs> you know? Uh, or, or your budget. Some pastors like to talk about their budget. You know, they'll, especially if they're in a seminar where they're talking about missions, inevitably they'll work in somehow... Yeah, our mission budget is $200,000 a year. Yeah, that's awesome. Church of, you know, 8,000 people, that's not bad at all. Compare the ministries. Oh, we have this ministry, that ministry, this ministry, that ministry. Oh, I just happen to have a bulletin in my Bible here. This, you know. Or number of pastors. Well, how many pastors do you have? How many? How big is your staff? We do get into this, and I have found over the years that that, that there are some people who really this is extremely important to them, and they're the same people every conference. And it's you know it, it, what it is. It's like it's a kind of form of competition. And sometimes even as churches and local communities, we get into that. Who's biggest? 
who can offer the most ministries. So, we are in the business of measuring, comparing, and evaluating things in such a way as to assess them, and we're basically using worldly standards. And I confess that I find myself doing the same thing. And at times I'll look at, our, at the bulletin on the upcoming page and it'll be so full that we don't, can't get everything on. And at other times there's only a couple items on it. And I'm thinking, oh, we've got to get more things going. Uh, you know, it's, it's, we, we get size and, and, and activity oriented as to being successful. These guys are the same. It's the same with everybody. I think we all run into this. And that's what's causing these guys to grumble. Grumbling. I, I think that's an interesting word. And, and, and here we see it. it's an outward sign of being unhappy. Complaining. This, uh, discontent. Even to the point of being critical. And if you grumble long enough, you're going to go from critical to a term that was introduced to me uh, years ago, and I won't tell you why, uh, hypercritical. In other words, you can be in a situation where somebody can actually be doing it right and you still won't give them the credit because you've gone hypercritical. You know, it's basically where you, know, you, you maybe have been in a situation where you have had an employer or, or, or uh, someone who is an authority over you where the best compliment you could get was, that was okay, but... And then comes the criticism. You know, uh, they, they just... They're negative. Or the employee that's negative. Uh, one company I worked for... Um, one group of, of, of laborers uh, in, in one part of the factory uh, didn't get the same amount of raise as another part got. Two different unions. Uh, in the factory that I worked with in, 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 in the Bay Area, uh, there were three unions that were in, in the factory. And these two guys, did diff- they were different jobs, but they were pay- comparable jobs. This one got a settlement better than this one. Yeah. This one was in charge of, of the you know, chemical side of things. And they got less, so they started bringing lunch boxes instead of bag lunches and, and, and stuff like that. And they would take home one of the most expensive ingredients in paint at the time, which is called titanium. It's what makes it hide, gives it hide, makes it able to color. Yeah, and and uh, they sneak enough home, and as a group could sell it, and there were other paint, small paint manufacturers that were just doing small jobs for architects and stuff like that that were really small operations would pay premium price for it. They felt justified because they weren't getting paid enough. You see how how far it can go, and and so you begin to you know see how people reason this out. Their logic was, I'm not stealing, I'm only taking what is rightfully due me. What these guys were saying was, you have, in a sense, been unfair with us, uh, Master. We came in good faith for a denarius day's, day's work for a denarius pay, a day's pay, and 
you pay these guys the same for one hour. I was thinking as I was looking through this, the idea of complainers. And uh, you can go back into the Exodus. And I was, I, 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 you just get to thinking about you know, all of the complaining those people did. They could not wait to get out of Egypt. They left Egypt with the spoils of Egypt. Yeah. And yet they were absolutely negative after a short period. And, and just a matter of days. Moses even brought us out here to die. They complained about how long the journey was. Reminded me of little kids. But this is a constant after about two hours in the car on a four-hour journey or longer. <laughs> Are we there yet? They didn't like being in the wilderness. We're going to die of thirst. There's no water. God provides water supernaturally. We're going to die of hunger. There's no food. God supplies food for them supernaturally. Moses is just a bad leader. By the way, that came up. And then they finally came into it with, we miss Egypt. Let's go back. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Keith Green. He's got a song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. Uh, it's, it's really fun to listen to. In fact, I listen to it just because of it. You know. A grumbler. And by the way, grumbling is contagious too. I look at our, our culture and... Right wing is grumbling at left wing and left wing is grumbling at right wing and we're grumbling everywhere in between on a political basis. And we see it again in, in, in churches. We, we grumble, you know, some people will grumble about this, some people will grumble about this. Church splits over carpet. I mean, and people say that's really a joke, right? No. It has happened. And so grumbling is something of, uh, uh, is, is, is contagious. And, and a grumbler, once you get into that grumbling mode where you, uh, you move into that hyper mode, you grumble about everything. And so as a result, you're never satisfied. You can't satisfy a grumbler, generally speaking, in that, in, 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 if they are going to be persistent with it. They're never satisfied with what he has. They're never satisfied with their situation. They're always looking ahead where someone's got more, better, whatever. And the interesting thing is, is that there isn't a one of us in this room that can't look the other way at the, uh, and, and find how wealthy we are. It was pointed out uh, you know, last, we're, we're some of the wealthiest people in the world. In fact, we are the wealthiest people in the world. And, we, and that's before we have a car or a house of our own in the United States. Add a car, and you, you've jumped up a number of percent in the world. Add your house. and Well, add a three-bedroom, two-bath house on your own individual lot. 
and you're in, 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 in the, the top couple percent of the world. We're wealthy people. But I grumble. Grumble about taxes. Grumble about prices of groceries. Ultimately, the grumbler looks around and says, the world's just against me. Everything is against me. No matter what I try to do. And, and we kind of come down to, look at the hand I've been dealt. You know, that person got you know, a, a full house, aces and, and, and kings, uh, before, you know, from the beginning. And I've got an inside draw to a small straight. Uh, there's no way to, I can compete. So why bother? Nonetheless, I look at this situation and, I, and like I said, most of us have grumbled at some time. Uh, someone's got the credit for what you did. I don't know if that's ever happened for you in, 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 a, in a work environment, but you've done something, really worked hard at it, and and then... Someone else gets the credit. Maybe the bonus. You know, it's uh, that woe is me attitude. Look at the hand I've been dealt. Someone gets more credit than I get. Or maybe, you know, Gets all the credit. And they actually did less work. That's frustrating. I have to say, I identify with this. Jesus expected us to identify with this. He expected us, in a sense, to say, yeah, that was an unfair situation. Initial, initial looking at it, that doesn't look right. Not equitable. Today, it would bring about a labor lawsuit. But what Jesus was trying to point out and would continue in the teaching that He does further on, if we go in Matthew, God's economy is different than the world's economy. I think their assessment, you have made them equal with us, is more real (laughs) than I even caught on to initially. Master's response was basically, uh, you know, this is mine. Who are you? You know, to say what I do with what is mine. If I want to be generous, I can be generous. Is that what you are, are complaining about? My generosity. And basically, the answer was, yeah, that's what we're complaining about. They weren't happy. They saw no blessing in the sense, in the, you know, they, they just, all they saw was what we didn't get our fair share. And so I was trying to look at this in a spiritual application 
And I, I knew the answer as I wrote the question on my notes. Do you want God's grace, blessing, based on your own merit? The standard, by the way, for the kingdom of heaven is be holy as God is holy. We have it on the back of our bulletin, you know, the Roman road. We're all sinners. We've all fall short of the glory of God. Our merit, no matter how, now I I I have never murdered anybody physically. But I've had the anger that Jesus speaks about, and so I've done it in my heart. I don't know how many demerits that is, but uh, you know, I'm not as bad as the murderer that did it physically. Interesting thing, as I had to approach this and think about this. A few of you are old enough to actually remember when it happened, and that was the Charles Manson murders. Tex Watson, Chuck Watson. He was the one of the murderers. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. That, I thought, was the first wrong. And he was sentenced to life imprisonment, and he got sentenced at, at Morro at the prison outside of Morro Bay, not too far from where Kathy and I grew up and where we live. And so it was noted; everybody knew that's where that's where Tech Watson is. He's in maximum security. They wouldn't put anybody around him because he killed a pregnant woman, and 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 that was something that even other bad people would look at and say that's you know something worth taking you out for even in prison, you know. I mean, it's kind of like, it's out, out of the, the, the rules. Kathy and I have been Christians a short time. One of the people in our church in Atascadero uh, worked for the Morro Bay Prison. And uh, he worked in the cell blocks that Chuck Watson was in. Tex Watson was in. And one day, Tex Watson made a claim. He'd received the Lord. I had no mercy for him. But I'll tell you, this is the first time I ever realized he's getting the same amount of heaven I'm getting. That was what they were complaining about, in a sense. Jesus is saying, you know, if you've got eternal life, you've got it all. The fact that your job won't make it, some will have this job. Yeah, you guys are going to sit on thrones and judge Israel, but that, that's, that, that's not important. The important thing is, is that you have what? Eternal life. You have been bought with the price, paid for in full, and there's nothing left to pay. There's nothing based on your ability, your merit, 
your life, it's been, you've been called out. And God has been generous. And He's been generous with equally all of us. And His grace extends and covers the sin of everyone He calls. is, is covered. He's bought them, paid for them completely. There's nothing we bring to it. And it doesn't matter, rich man, poor man, you know, it, 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 it has nothing to do with your status in the world. It has nothing to do with how long you've been a Christian. I know I've shared this before, but the, the, an elderly man dying of cancer accepts the Lord and he's in his 80s. And a girl who had been raised in a missionary family and then, a, and then, a, and then he became a pastor in the, in the United States uh, says, I've had to be a Christian all my life and he gets, he gets to go to heaven. He's in his 80s. He's just now, he, got to, he got to play the world. And he's getting the same that I get. And she resented it. And Kathy and I are new Christians. We didn't understand what to resent, not what to resent, you know. But you know, it, was, it was interesting how uh, uh, the, the, the couple leading the, the Sunday school class set us all straight that morning. That um, has nothing to do with that. I met on a mission to Mexico an 84-year-old man, six-month-old Christian. He was probably going to be on his only trip as a mission worker. It was interesting to talk with him because he basically made the statement, uh, I don't have much left, but I'm here. And he knew that he was saved. By the way, an irony on top of an irony, he'd been going to church all his life and had never made a confession of Jesus Christ. He'd been on a board in the church all, for the last number of years and had never made a confession to Jesus Christ. He had no idea that's what a Christian was. Ask Lance Anderson about this story because he's the one that led this man to the Lord. If you know Lance. Just a side note to shrink the world. He and my father turned out were classmates. And that he had had my grandfather as his teacher. Just shrink the world a little bit, you know. But the idea, more than anything, was is that, you know, what what is to be my response to rejoice that an 84 year old man is the eleventh? Talk. He he saw it. He understood. It. He didn't say the eleventh hour. But you understand what the eleventh hour is. It means that we use it today. Made it by the eleventh hour. He got in by the skin of his teeth. We we you know he just made it. The last moment. We are to be excited that He gets eternal life. Knowing those things has encouraged me even to, to, to go to people at their deathbed and share the Lord one more time. I have had the greatest experience of my life was to see someone on their deathbed except Jesus Christ. And to know that I, I, I got to walk away from that situation knowing he and I are co-equals, heirs, joint heirs, brothers 
in Christ. So what we look at is how do we come against the grumbling spirit? And I think there's a tendency for all of us to have to deal with it. At various times, it may be more often than not. Uh, I, I, I was thinking of, as, as soon as I, I, I said, how do, how do we deal with this? The, 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 the phrase from a song, count your blessings, name them one by one. That's as far as I'll go. Uh, you know, and that was the beginning of it. You, know, you, you start by counting your blessings. Do you believe God is just, good, and righteous and doesn't make mistakes? We have to look at that and say, we believe in the God of our salvation. He is just, He is righteous, He doesn't make mistakes. Who am I to grumble how He blesses or gives or takes away? I know God is generous with His grace. Because I know me. I know that sin is missing the mark and that I've missed the mark and I deserve, according to merit, death. Separation from God eternally. That's what I deserve. Thanks to Jesus Christ and through His cross and His sacrifice, He called me into salvation and I rest in His grace. That's my first blessing, I guess. That's where I start to count. But you want to know what? As soon as I, as I became a Christian, I started to be able to look back and see how many other blessings had been in my life. How God had used people clear back into my earliest childhood that I could remember to lay seeds and foundations and thoughts of Christ. I, you know, I spent more of my, my, my younger life, especially, you know, teenage years, and, and uh, looking back and saying, you know, all the, seeing all of the negative things that had happened. Can I count those even as a blessing? If I trust that God was leading His way to get me to the point where I could say yes to His kingdom. Yeah. You, you come out of your house. You're in a hurry. And you've got a flat tire. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Maybe that flat tire is what spares you from an accident. Somebody says, well, that's, that's just that hunky-dory on the way to glory, you know, uh, pie-in-the-sky type of thing. No, what it is, is it's just saying, I believe God is in control and He has got my, my future, my, 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 my soul, my being in His hands. Do I trust Him? Do I believe Him? Do I, I, I believe He has done what He says He has done? If I do, 
then what he has called me to do is to come. I think uh, one good scripture would be Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that testing, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, get your mind out of the world and into His kingdom. Get your mind out of the world and into His Scripture. Get your mind out of the world as, as your assessment and say, how does God look at things and what does God want from And what does He want from me? I know very specifically some things He wants from me. He says very clearly in the Beatitudes, seek first the kingdom of God. You want all these other things, Bob. You want your clothing. You want your food. You want all this other stuff. But first, seek my kingdom. Do you believe as you seek me, I can provide? He says he can. He says he will. He tells me if I want something, you know, to come to him and I want to know his will and I want it to be worked through into my life, he says, then come to me and ask, knock, seek. Actually, it's ask, seek, and knock. But, you know, I just want to share this with you is this idea is that we're not looking about what's fair, what's equal, what's right in the sense of the way the world looks at it. What we're looking at is within the framework of the kingdom of God, he has paid everything that is necessary and he has blessed every believer no matter what his status when he comes in, no matter what time of life he comes in, with the same. We all have the same eternal life. There's not going to be you know, uh, the, you know, separate walls in the kingdom of God and you know, certain groups are over on this side because their, group, their, 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 their denominations uh, were holier than that. It's going to be the body of believers who have confessed Christ as their Savior. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. How? By seeking first the kingdom of God. His righteousness, His holiness. And He will see you through. All of this based on what Christ has done. He emptied Himself became a man, even a servant of man, even to the point of the cross. His grace is amazing. I'd like the ushers to come forward, the worship team to come back up. and We're going to pass out communion and ask that you'd hold it until we've all been served and we'll share it together.